Uh, today's question is an important one. I'd like to know how connected you feel here at Old North. And so I hope everybody who has a card will fill this out and put it in the offering plate when it comes by. How connected do you feel? Not very, somewhat, getting better, and very. So important to be connected. I know in every church, some people aren't going to feel connected. Some will feel very connected. But we want to go in the right direction here that everybody's going to feel more uh, connected here at Old North as the uh, months come on. Last week, how often do you check the web page? If this were a final exam, you'd have flunked. Very many, very few people check our website. And I want to encourage you that we have a new website up. It's been up since January. More and more, we want to push you in that direction to get information. We're going to try to do better keeping it up to date, but uh, more of you need to be visiting the church website than uh, you've in the past. So something else, we're about ready to take our offering. Uh, <clears throat> about October, as my memory serves me, we were nearly six figures behind the budget, about 101000 something in the red in terms of behind the budget. I cannot believe what has happened since October. We were at a meeting of leaders last Monday night, and we're approximately minus 5,000. Do you realize we've made up $95,000 in three months with a bad winter we've had? This has been incredible. To your generosity and to your stewardship and all that kind of thing, I commend you to the Lord for that kind of uh, uh, caring about the well-being of the ministry here. If you are a guest today, don't feel any obligation to put anything in the offering plate. Uh, that's for those of us who are regulars, and we do that because we want to let the Lord know that we love Him, we worship Him, He's our King, we are His stewards, and we offer Him our first fruits. And so would you bow with me as I pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the life of this church. Just even a few moments ago, talking about how the people here have responded to the situation financially. Lord, what a generosity that has prevailed. And I thank you, Lord, on behalf of this church, for people who have stepped up and have given generously to the cause of the gospel and its goings forth around the world. Lord, I even think of Carol Perkins right now, who's over in Africa. We commissioned her last week on that trip. And I pray that your spirit might be with her in a very, very special way. Maybe she needs to be uplifted today and encouraged. And even at this moment, she'll sense that something is going on spiritually in her heart in a very special way. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in the lives of our church and for those who are struggling financially or physically or emotionally. We pray, Lord, that you would come underneath them and encourage them. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing across our region in the ministries of the gospel. And each week we see and hear stories, whether it be a Christian school or a city mission or a pregnancy help center, whatever it might be, Lord. You are doing awesome things, and we behold your hand even day by day. So we give you praise and thanks for all that you are and all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.
that was good, wasn't it? I, I looked across and I saw you. You were there, you know, keeping beat and everything. It kind of got into our spirits today. That's a good song. It is well with my soul. I hope it is well with yours today. How many of you have been watching the Olympics over the last two weeks? A number of you, I have. I've enjoyed it. You know something? It's interesting how we didn't have athletes a month ago say, you know what, I think it might be fun to go over and, and uh, be an Olympian. No, they, they had to get going when they were young. And they had to work hard year after year. And they had to have a coach and all kinds of things. They just didn't decide to go over and be an Olympian. And you know, the Apostle Paul, he often talks about sports and the Christian life. And he likens the Christian life to a race with a lot of discipline, and we got to practice and train, and the goal is to win, and just like an Olympian, it takes a lot of work. If we don't invest in the Christian life and grow up, it's not going to happen. It just doesn't happen automatically. And so today, we're talking about this whole matter of growing up spiritually together, and the elders and the pastors have thrown down the gauntlet. We, as a church, are going to grow up together and we're going to work hard on it this year. And not just some of us, all of us want to be hands in the middle, working hard to grow up. We don't want to stall this church out by some of us saying, oh, we're just going to not worry about growing up. We're going to take the easy way. That's not where we're coming from. Now, spiritually speaking, it's hard to measure spiritual progress. It's kind of nebulous. It's kind of uh, not easy to to quantify. And so we've created some tools that can help you. Now, these aren't the end-all, be-all kind of things, but some things that can help us as a church. And I've listed six of them today that we can review. Nathan, already on the uh, announcements, talked about them. But the first thing is a commitment card. Do you know that even I have filled out a a commitment card? Because I want to kind of lead the way. And over 700 have already filled them out. And I'm asking for hundreds more if you haven't filled yours out yet. It's just a symbol of saying, yeah, I'm in the game. Yeah, I'm going to put my heart and my soul into growing up. And if you haven't done that yet, I'd love you to fill out a commitment card. You can pick one up at Growing Up Together Central outside in the lobby. Pastor Chris has affectionately named that Gut Central Growing Up Together, the first words or the letters off of each one, Gut Central. So you can go to Gut Central and get your commitment card and, and uh, uh, say that you're in there. The second thing is a leaf keychain, and I've got mine. And on that is a, a green uh, little vine picture there and compass and growing up together. And, you know, every time I um, get into my car or get into my house, I think about, you know, I'm committed to growing up together in my spiritual life with everybody else at Old North. It's a good memory tool, and I hope that you'll pick yours up if you haven't already at Gut Central. Tool number three is an accountability partner. On that card was a little tear-off, and you could invite a friend, you can invite a family person to say, would you check up on me from time to time? I want to be taking this next step, and maybe it's going to be difficult for me. Would you check in with me? I don't know about you, but it's always easier to exercise or go on a diet if you've got somebody who's an accountability partner. And so this might be for you, that you would just ask somebody that they would become an accountability partner for you, and that might help a lot. Number four is regular worship attendance. As I shared before in the other pastors, it's the preaching of the word on a regular basis that helps people grow. One of the major ways that people grow. 
And so I'm asking you to come out every Sunday and hear the word of God so that you may grow thereby. And right now we are in 1 Peter. Tool number five is the book we're calling E100. They're available at Gut Central as well and only $7. And I'm encouraging each of you to get one. I mean, it's not that much money and it's an investment in your own life. But if you have your own, you won't wonder, well, what did somebody do with that? I can't find it. Or you can do your own journaling in it and it can be very, very personal. By the way, we're going to have with those books, and they haven't come yet, punch cards. Because we're going to go through as a church 20 weeks of the essential 100 stories in the Bible. And as you go, story number one, you punch it out. Story number two, you punch it out. I like that kind of thing. They haven't arrived yet, but next week you can go get them at Gut Central, and you'll be able to keep track of all of your progress in reading. And then finally, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on in the sermon, we're calling it the next step card. And some ideas about how you can take the next step in your own spiritual growth. Well, now we take this journey together. Today we're going to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And the apostle Peter is talking about holiness. How God is holy, how we have to be holy. And there's a frightening statement even by the author of Hebrews. Shakes me up every time I read it. And I'm going to read it today. It says, basically, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I mean, what we're talking about today is very important truth. To the point that if we are cavalier about it, if we don't take holiness for granted, it could actually affect our relationship to the Lord long term and in eternity. And so I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and I'm going to read it, and you can follow along as I read the entire passage of what I'll be talking about today on God's holiness and what it means for our conduct. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You may be seated. And by the way, If you don't have a Bible, in the Pew Bible, we are on page 1014, and you can follow along as I preach this morning. In fact, if you come today and you realize, I don't even have a Bible, you can take that Pew Bible home with you as a gift from Old North and make that your Bible and read from it every day, and especially as we're growing up together, it might be of some great help to you. George Barna is perhaps the best-known Christian pollster in America. He looks at trends in the church. 
Between the years of 2005 and 2010, his research group found out that 40% of adult Americans basically claim a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior. Four out of ten. And he classifies them as born-again Christians. He also has another category. 39%, four out of ten adult Americans, may attend church, live according to Christian principles, read their Bible, be very religious. The one thing that marks them from the other is that they don't claim to be born again. They claim to be Christian, but not in a personal relationship with Christ. And so we have 40% claim to be born again, 39% claim to be in church and doing religious things. In fact, Time Magazine kind of confirmed those results when it said that 82% of adult Americans identify themselves as Christians. So you have the born-agains, and you have those who basically he calls notional Christians, those who kind of believe that they're born again, but they've never come to Christ, even though they do religious things. Now, only God knows the heart. I don't know who's born again. I know I'm born again because I've turned my life over to Christ, but I can't say anything about you. Only God knows. But here's what I'm wondering. I am wondering why America isn't a different place if 40% of Americans claim to be born again and a 39% claim to be Christians and so forth. I mean, we're talking about 100 million people who claim to be born again and almost another 100 million who claim to be some kind of Christian. Why in the world is America on a downward spiral morally? Why in the world is the church not having a greater impact? You see, if the light of the world goes out and that is the church, then the world goes dark. And unfortunately, I think what's happening is that the light that we are is put under the bushel that Jesus said, and the world is going dark instead of light. Well, Peter is writing his letter to a group of people that he calls elect exiles in verse 1. He calls them born again in verse 3. He calls them believers in Christ in verse 8 who have obtained the salvation of their souls in verse 9. So the apostle Peter is writing to real, authentic, born-again Christians, not, not notional Christians. These are people who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor Chris talked about all that goes into being born again. And now we come to verses 13 through 21. And we see this word that connects what Pastor Chris talked about last week to our section today. It's the word therefore. If you are a born-again believer, and all that goes with what Pastor Chris talked about last week, therefore, there is a responsibility that goes with being born again. And that's what we're talking about today. In fact, the big idea of the sermon is found in verse 15, and that's our responsibility. If you've been born again, therefore, the responsibility is this. As believers in Christ, we are to be holy in all our conduct because God is holy. Now, I want you to catch this. When you get born again, the Spirit of God comes within our life, completely changes us from the inside out. The Apostle John calls that the seed of God being in us. And we get the spirit, we get the seed of God in us. What happens is we develop an aversion away from sin. We don't want to go towards sin. 
We get a heart for God, and we want to move towards God's heart and his behavior. And more and more, that born-again people behave in ways that reflect God, and less and less in ways they used to behave. More and more, we have corresponding qualities of God-like presence in us, and less and less sin and evil. God calls that being holy. And he's calling us to this standard. Less sin and more God-like character in our lives to be holy. Now, unfortunately, being holy is not automatic any more than the athlete in the Olympics. Hey, I'm a good athlete. I'm going to go over, and my goal is automatic. It just doesn't happen that way. In fact, what we learn today is that even though God caused us to be born again, even though he puts his spirit within us and the seed of God within us, there's a cooperation that must happen between God's people who are born again and the spirit of God's work in our life. And if we don't have that cooperation, what we end up becoming is hypocrites in denial. People who ought to be growing up but aren't, and we act Christian but we know our lives don't measure up, and we become, as I said, hypocrites in denial. And so there are three challenges that I want you to see that Paul, excuse me, that Peter gives us today. They are three different adjustments that are very important. So let's go to them. In the text, verse 13, challenge number one, we need a mental adjustment if we're going to be holy. Now, the battle for holiness begins in the mind. It's the way we think. And if we lose the battle in the mind for holiness, we lose it right there, and we have no other recourse. And so we've got to agree with God in our minds that holiness is a good idea. We've got to agree with God that we are going to make decisions that will make us to act like he. And I can tell you, it ain't gonna be easy. It's very hard. So there are three areas of mental adjustment that Peter talks about. And I think we have to understand them in order to make this adjustment. The first one is in verse 13a. The first area of our mental adjustment is we have to gird up our minds. Now, verse 13 in the text that we use here, the English Standard Version says, basically, prepare your minds for action. Literally, in the Greek, it is gird up the loins of your mind. I like the word gird up better because it is a a stronger picture than prepare. And it's much more descriptive of the mental adjustments that we have to make. Now, in those days, the people as a matter of course, would wear long and flowing robes. And so if they were going to run and they didn't do something to the robe, they'd trip. If they were going to carry loads and move all kinds of things and they didn't get the flowing robes girded up, it would impede the way they could work. And so what they had to do was gird up their, their robes with ropes and to make sure they tied them tight if they were going to run or tie them close to the body if they were going to work hard or they would falter along the way. I bought a bathrobe in Africa when I was there on a missions trip. This robe is a nice robe, except it's got one problem. The leaves are, leaves, yeah, the sleeves are are so big that I'm walking down the hallway in my house and I grab a hold of the doorknob or something that pulls me back. I mean, I'm getting, you know, jerked around all over. So you know what I have to do? I've got to gird up my sleeves. And you know how I do it? Very fashionably with rubber bands. My wife's over there going, oh, no, don't tell this one, you know. But I gird up my robe with rubber bands. 
And what has to happen in your mind is somehow there are so many loose ends out there. We become undisciplined. We rationalize. We tell ourselves lies and all kinds of things. We've got to get the robe loose ends of our mind and gird them up. And so what happens? The loose ends come and sometimes we have so much sloppy thinking. We open up the Bible and we see a, a direct thing that tells us what not to do or what to do. And we say, well, that doesn't apply to us. My case is different. That's sloppy thinking. That's not girding up your mind. Or you go out there and, and maybe you're being entertained by all kinds of un, patently unchristian things. And you say, well, wait a minute. It's 2014. That's the way the world is. It's not going to hurt me, even though it's laced with profanity and all this kind. Wait, it will hurt you. That sloppy thinking, your robe of the mind is not girded up. Or you think, well, everybody else is doing it. It doesn't matter. Wait a minute. You haven't girded up your mind. How do you gird up your mind? The rope is the word of God. And you've got to take your mind to the word of God and get all those sloppy ends and rationalizations and lies and gird them up and admit that the word of God is the truth and that we have to get our minds in a place and out of compromise or we will be rampant with tripping up all over the place in the way our minds spiritually. But there's a second mental adjustment. In verse 13, part B, it says the sobering of our minds. In the Greek, it says be sober. Now, this isn't the idea of having a, a, a look in your face as just being sober and solemn. This is talking about not being intoxicated. This means that you will not be under an influence that will cause you not to be in control. And so we have to be sober. We have to be in control. And the problem is there are far too many people under the influence of other things and other people in their lives that cause them to be out of control, that they are no longer influencing their own lives, and they are no longer sober. And it's so important to be sure that we have sober minds. Now, how do you get a sober mind? How do you get under the right influence? The first way is that you come under the control of the Spirit of God. And Galatians talks about walking in the Spirit under His control. The second is that you obey the Word of God. When you obey the Word of God, you come under the sober, the influences of the Word of God. And the third thing is that you hang around people who are good influences to you. Do not, be, do not be deceived. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, bad company corrupts good morals. It's so important that we have sober minds, walking in the spirit, obeying the word around people who will influence us well. Otherwise, unholy behavior leads us to spiritual insobriety or drunkenness. Third area of mental adjustment we need to make is focusing our minds. Look at verse 13 and part C. The text says, set your hope fully or fix your mind on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. My friends, if you need to make an mental adjustment, it ought to be this. Instead of focusing on the things of this world, you focus on the return of Christ. And one of the things I have seen in my lifetime, when I was younger, 40 years ago, the church of Christ was much more focused on the return of Christ than it is today. My sense today is that the church is far too comfortable in this world. 
Uh, Lord, you can come, but I'd rather, you know, have all the amenities that I have. And we're not focusing on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I really believe this is one of the deficiencies of the American church. The American church has forgotten that she is, actually not the American church, the church of the world, has forgotten that she is the bride of Jesus Christ and she's forgotten her wedding day. The wedding day is the return of Christ. And when Christ comes back, Ephesians chapter 5, it says, I'm coming for my bride, and I want her to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And what happens when we lose our focus on the coming of Christ, we acquire spots and wrinkles, and we're not going to be a beautiful bride. And so it's so important to make these adjustments and so important to fix our mind. The Apostle John said, when we focus our eyes on the return of Christ. He says, he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And friends, we need to live in the daily expectation of Christ's return and that will change our behavior. Well, we talked about a mental adjustment. Let's move to the second challenge. The second challenge is a behavioral adjustment. As born again people, Peter says we're to conform to the character of God in all our behavior, not as verse 14 says, to the passions of our former ignorant lust, whatever they may have been. Now, I don't know if you figured this out, but <clears throat> the Christian life actually becomes harder after you come to Christ than before you came to Christ. Did you know that? And do you know why? Before you were a Christian, you only had one nature. It was your fallen nature. It was the nature from Adam. And after you come, become a Christian, you get the new nature. We become partakers of a divine nature. We have the seed of God in us. And so what we have is this battle, this constant pull between doing our old thing and doing the things of God. And this pull is there on how we'll be behaving. And our old nature wants to gratify itself outside of the bonds and the bounds of God and his character and his commandments. And it's a magnetic pull. I feel it every day. What's more, verse 14 says that if you didn't have a Christian background, and by the way, the people that he was writing to here, many of them had been converted from paganism. They didn't have a Christian background. And more and more America is like that. It doesn't have a Christian memory. It says, you didn't even know that living for your lusts in the old nature was wrong. If your body was hungry, you ate something. In the same way, if your body wanted sex outside of marriage, you did it. And if you wanted to tell somebody a lie, it didn't matter, you did it. And if you wanted to be crooked in your business deal, it didn't matter. You didn't know any better because you had no idea what God wanted for you. But when you become a Christian... When you become born again, you realize that there's another standard. There's a higher road, and God calls us to that road. And so he says that we are to be holy in all of our behavior. So when you get born again, he calls us, and verse 14, he says, Do not let your old appetites control you. Don't do what you used to do with all of your inner appetites and lusts. Wherever you are as a born-again believer, under every circumstance, even in your own home, when nobody is with you in private, you do what is right and you become authentic even down to what you do when no one will know the difference. Well, you might be wondering, how far are you going to take this, Brother Al? You mean I got to be good in everything and I can't be a little bad? Look at verse 15. 
<laughs> it says, be holy in some of your behavior. Is that what it says? It says, be holy in all. You know, God doesn't have partial holiness in mind. God has a complete transformation in his heart for us. He doesn't want us to be good when we're in church and then do whatever we want when we're not here. He is looking for our total transformation. What's more? For born-again people, Peter doesn't say that holiness is a nice idea or a suggestion. He says in verse 14, it's a command, a command. He says, as obedient children, be holy. Now, those of us who are parents know that when we raise our children, we give them some commands. Don't do this. Don't run in the street. Do this. Whatever. We give them commands. And when they're three and four and five, basically, they follow the commands. I don't know what happens, but when the hormones hit, when they're 13 and 14 somehow, the commands don't work that anymore. And you can't say, Go ahead and do this. And they'll say, well, why? Because I said so. It doesn't run. It doesn't work. And I think Peter has this sense that we as Christians also need some reasons, which leads us to the third adjustment. We talked about a mental adjustment. We talked about a behavioral adjustment. Now we're talking about a theological adjustment, knowing who God is in order to be like him and the reasons why that is important. So challenge three, verses 16 through 21, is a theological adjustment. Now you may not realize this, but all of us have wrong thoughts about God. I do, you do. Some of us have made God to be too harsh. Some of us have made God to be too lenient. Some of us made God to be too buddy-buddy. Some of us have made God to be too westernized, too human, too Republican. You know what I'm talking about. And so we don't have concepts of God that are accurate. But but Peter is giving us three compelling thoughts about God that should shape our behavior. And they become three compelling reasons to be holy. So in this theological adjustment, let's go to the first one. Reason number one to be holy is that God is holy. We are to be holy in all our behavior, verse 16, because God is holy. Now, we live in a day that people want to set their own moral standards. We live in a day where they don't want to be told by anybody what they ought to do. They want to make up their own minds about their own morality, and morality has become a personal preference, not something that God has handed over to us through the Word And that is a lie from Satan. The Word of God basically says that the only ground for morality in the universe is in the holiness of God. He is the moral compass. He is the final reason things are right or wrong. Morality is centered in the nature of God and what's right for God is right for creation and what's wrong for God is wrong for creation. And we have to understand that God's holiness is the basic reality for all of our morality. And born-again people are to be holy, not because the church says so, but because God in his very nature is holy and he sets the standard. And we as born-again believers are to be reflections of who he is and how he behaves. And if we expect to live forever with God, why would we want to get with the program right now? I mean, I just never figured that one out. 
So the first reason we are to be holy is because God sets the standard and we are to be like him. The second reason, theologically, that we are to be holy is that God is an impartial judge. Verse 17. Peter cautions Christians about taking God for granted. Here's the temptation. When you come to know Christ, sometimes we think that God likes us better than he likes sinners. And so he's going to treat us a little bit differently and wink at some of our foibles and our sins, and, but he's really going to take it out hard on the sinners. Peter is saying, I've got to remind you something. Not only is God your father, he is your impartial judge. He's not just your buddy, he's just not your friend. He is a judge, and when you stand before a judge, you need to have some kind of what? Fear. And so he talks about fear, a healthy fear of God as judge. Now, you know what? We've lost the fear of God in the church. There is no fear of God in the church of America. We just kind of do what we want to, and Peter is talking about the fear of God. We need to reclaim that. And what has happened in many churches is that we have redefined the fear of God to reverential awe in worship. That's lame. I mean, that's part of the fear of God. But the fear of God is this, that you serve him, you love him, but also realize he is a judge who can hurt you. What am I talking about? We need to think about this in terms of our parents and in the family structures. We love our moms and our dads, I hope, and we have a relationship with them as friends as we grow up. But as we're under their authority, we realize they can also discipline us. They can also bring pain into our life. Why? To hurt us? No, because they want to instruct us and help us and protect us and discipline us for our own good when necessary. And so when we disobey our parents, there's a sense of fear that ought to be there. And the same thing prevails with God. We should know that God is the God who's a judge and we stand accountable before him for everything in our lives. And somehow, there needs to be that reclaiming of the sense that when we step out of God's, uh, God's path, there's an injury that can come to us out of his love that can hurt us, but many Christians forget about that entirely. And Peter's saying, God is a God whom, upon whom we should not presume he can actually hurt us when need be for our own good. The third reason we're to be holy, this mental and then behavioral and then finally theological adjustment, is reason number three, verses 18 through 21. God owns us. And verse 18 says, we've been redeemed. What does that mean? Redemption is a price paid so that a slave can go free. And what happened is that the word of God says here that God bought our freedom from sin and, and with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, not gold and silver. And so he bought us. With, with something that is so important and so much greater than anything this world has to offer. What's more? The Apostle Paul says that when he bought our freedom, God bought us. He owns us. We are no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. So he says, therefore, glorify God in your what? Body. And we are to be holy before him because he owns us. Now, the amazing thing is, in verse 20, it says this purchase, purchase wasn't a last-minute thing. On God's part. He didn't see humanity crashing and say, oh, what am I going to do? i got to figure out a way to redeem them. It says he redeemed them. Predetermined past, he understood what he would do with us. And here's the point. 
If God intentionally bought our freedom from slavery to sin and now owns us, why would we ever want to slap him in the face by treating his investment as trash? He owns us. We no longer own ourselves, And therefore, it's very, very important not to harm his investment. So theologically thinking, he's holy. We need to be holy. And he's a judge. We need to fear him. And he owns us. We can't trash his investment. And so as I conclude, I want you to know that the greatest challenge of the Christian life is to be holy in all our conduct. If you want to know what the biggest challenge is, right there it is. And if we're going to make progress at all in this matter of practical holiness, we need to make three adjustments. A mental adjustment, a behavioral adjustment, and a theological adjustment. Author and speaker Tony Campolo frames it this way. He speaks about the problem of mixing manure with ice cream. And he says, if you mix manure with ice cream, will it harm the manure? The answer is what? No. But if you mix the manure with the ice cream, will it harm the ice cream? The answer, yes. Born-again Christians are ice cream. The world and its sin is manure, and God says, I want you to be holy. I want you to be good ice cream. I don't want you to be filled with manure. And he calls us to be holy. In your compass today is a little card. I'd like you to pull that out right now. And I want you to know that holiness isn't just about not doing a certain thing. Holiness is also about doing the right things. And on this card is a call to grow up together on the front. And then on the back are a number of suggestions where you might be in order that you might take a next step in your growth and in holiness. I don't know what your situation might be, but under physical, maybe part of holiness and growing up would be to improve your diet. That's kind of where I am. I need to do some changes there. And it's hard. But you know what? This is the temple. He's bought my temple. It's a holiness issue. How about spiritual? Maybe we need to increase our prayer life and take that step. Maybe we need to memorize a passage of Scripture and get that in our heart to overcome some temptation. Relational, maybe we need to make an apology. Financial, maybe we need to reduce our debt. If you're not a good steward, then you're not living a holy life. And maybe the last one, emotional. Maybe you need to join a support group because you're having such a hard time and you need the support of other people to help you so that you don't believe God's abandoned you. All those kinds of things. I want this card to be kind of a coach for you, to put in your Bible, to say, is there a next step on this card that I can take? All the way from baptism to maybe telling someone about Christ. Maybe your next step is not on this card, but this card will be a reminder to you that you need to continue to take a next step in your growth and in your holiness. I believe this morning that God has a lot of us that want to respond to the message today. And so we're going to do it a little bit different. I'm not going to ask you to come forward because I believe there are going to be dozens of you who want to say, yes, I want to take a next step. And so if having heard this message today on holiness and having looked at this card and the Spirit of God has spoken to you, say, yes, there is a concrete next step I need to take in my growth and my holiness, I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you are and then I'm going to pray for you. If God has spoken, and I believe he has to many of you, that you need to take a next step. 
Would you stand right where you are? And then I will pray, and then we're going to sing. Across this auditorium, like we did in the first service, many stood. And the Spirit of God has spoken, and you know there's something you need to do. Are you willing to do it? Many of you have stood. Let me pray. Father, I look across this auditorium. Many have stood. I'm standing here. There's another step I need to take, and then one beyond that. Lord, I don't want to fail you. I don't want these people to fail you in any way. And God, I pray that you would help them and me to be holy as you are holy in all our behavior and to take those next steps of growth in our own homes and wherever we work or whatever we do, wherever we are, with whomever we are with, that we might be able to take these steps and thereby show that we are the children of God and not phonies. And I pray this in Christ's name. The rest of you can...